Gutiérrez. There's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Barabbas, they answered. But what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah, Pilate asked. And they all answered, crucify him. And then he released Barabbas to them. But he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And as they crucified him, Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each could get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi! Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with white wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. I've entitled the message this evening, When God Brought Hell to Earth. And out of the 15th chapter of Mark that Ben read here for us this evening, I just want to focus on two verses, verses 33 and 34. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is a Greek pronunciation, and it means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a profound statement that's not often understood or sometimes even perhaps misunderstood. Where was God? Did he not show up at Calvary? The modern day question is, right, if God is love, then why did he allow or do such a horrible thing? 
Where was he? Now we know the truth that the death of Christ was the most effective act on behalf of condemned sinners. The most effective act ever rendered because it was the payment that was required in order to satisfy God. Every animal ever sacrificed from way back in the Old Testament history all the way up to Christ was only a picture of his death. It was a symbol. It was a foreshadowing. They all fell short of being able to atone for or to pay for our sin. Scripture tells us that the Son of Man, Jesus, came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we preach Christ and him crucified. So I have to look at you behind the cross. <laughs> I guess being behind the cross is not a bad thing, right? <clears throat> Lost my place. Okay, let's, let's come back here. <clears throat> so we preach him crucified, as Paul said there in 1 Corinthians. And in looking at the cross, we're left with what appears to be true, two, excuse me, profoundly contradictory realities. On the one hand, the crucifixion is no doubt the, the most evil, the most treacherous, the most villainous act ever perpetrated on anyone in history, in humanity. The death of Jesus Christ from a human point of view is the most egregious injustice in history because Jesus was without sin. It was the greatest act of blasphemy in all of human history. But on the other hand, the crucifixion of our Lord was the most necessary act of justice required by divine holiness. So where exactly was God? Did God forsake him in that hour? It's Seems to be what Jesus was saying there in verse 24. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did this horrible act of injustice happen because God was absent? This passage that we're looking at this evening, I believe, answers that question and actually answers it in a very profound way. Take a look again at verse 33. At noon, which is the sixth hour, at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. Three hours of pitch blackness. And by this point, Jesus had already spoken three times. He had already said, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. He had already addressed John and Mary there at the foot of the cross and, and said, here's your mother and here, here's your son. And he has said to the thief next to him, today you'll be in paradise with me. But then the point of time when it was supposed to be the brightest of the whole day, high noon, everything goes dark for three hours. And the question before us is, does this symbolize the absence of God? And if God did forsake him, in what way did he forsake him? Now, the Jews were very much aware of the nature of God from their Old Testament scripture that they had, and one thing they knew for certain, that God was light. They knew Psalm 27, verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. 
Psalm 18 says, The Lord my God lightens my darkness. Psalm 36 says, In your light do we have or do we see light? Even in Isaiah chapter 2, says, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Another passage that speaks of God as light is the beginning of the 60th chapter of Isaiah. Listen, arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, the darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples, but the Lord rises up upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. So God is obviously light, and God was going to come and shine his glory someday in the future, someday that, where, where Isaiah was prophesying so that the whole world would be basking in that light, and we know that Jesus came, and he was the light of the world. So maybe darkness is telling us that God wasn't there, ah, but the Jews knew better than that. You see, it was also known to the Jews that God showed up on a number of occasions in darkness. If you were to go back and read Exodus, back to chapter 10, you'd find in verse 21, the ninth plague of Egypt, which was three days of darkness. And this darkness is one of the plagues that God personally sent to punish the Egyptians. God showed up in Egypt as darkness, thick, impenetrable Darkness. A little later in the book of Exodus, in, in chapter 19, you'll find the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God shows up again. And when he shows up, he shows up, Scripture says, in a thick, dense cloud. The next chapter, the 20th chapter of Exodus, God gives the Ten Commandments. You remember that? And after giving the Ten Commandments, everything around that mountain was covered with smoke. And it says, Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes God shows up as light, and sometimes God shows up as darkness. When he shows up as light, it's revelation, it's salvation. But when he shows up as darkness, it's condemnation and it's judgment. Isaiah says in chapter 5, verse 30, that God's judgment will come, and he says this, quote, There is only darkness and distress. Even the sun will be darkened by clouds. The prophet Joel in chapter 1, looking ahead to the final judgment at the end of human history, says that the day of the Lord will come like destruction from the Almighty. And he goes on in the next chapter, The sun and moon are darkened and the stars no longer shine. The day of the Lord, he says, is great and it is dreadful. And prophet Amos wrote in chapter 8, verse 9, listen to this, and it sounds like the day at Calvary. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. So yes, the Jews would know that God showed up as light, but they also knew, knew that he showed up as darkness. And the darkness always symbolizes God's judgment, God in anger. Folks, God showed up at the cross in darkness. That was him. You remember Jesus describing hell in Matthew 22, verse 13, as outer darkness, judgment of God. Listen, for three hours, God brought 
hell to earth. This was the cup that Jesus knew he had to drink and from which he strongly reacted in the garden three times. If there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. It was God coming in darkness and judgment, and during those three hours, the mockery of the people was silenced. No taunting is recorded. In fact, no one speaks. There's no record of anyone speaking, not even Jesus. So was this just a quiet respite for Jesus? Whew, I can relax. No. Quite the contrary. The darkness is not the absence of God. The darkness is the presence of God in judgment. In those three hours, Jesus suffered the eternal hell of all who would believe. Full judgment, full vengeance, full fury. Someone described it as infinite wrath, moved by infinite justice, releasing infinite punishment on the infinite Son. And he absorbs all the tortures of hell for all who believe. Folks, for you and for me. And then after the darkness, verse 34, the ninth hour, the darkness ends. And that's when Jesus cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How in the world do we understand that? Because it's clear that God was there. He was there punishing him in that darkness. So much darkness that virtually nothing else happened. God was there in full present, pulling, uh, pouring out full fury. So when judgment ended and darkness dissipated, where was God? It seems as though it was only after the darkness that our Lord sensed a separation from God. He was there in the darkness punishing His Son. Jesus felt that punishment and felt that presence. I would think that His Son would have been looking for some comfort from His Father, some compassion, looking for His Father's arms reaching out finally to wrap around Him and, and loving Him and embracing Him. But he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's the significance of those using the name twice, my God, my God? This is the only time in the entire New Testament that Jesus didn't address God as Father. But then this is the only time that he ever felt that separation. But why the double expression, my God, my God? And I think if we, we can find that answer if we look at how, how that's been used in Scripture on a human level. level. In Genesis chapter two, 2, excuse me, Genesis chapter 22, the angel says, Abraham, Abraham. Exodus 3, God says, Moses, Moses. 2 Samuel 18 and 19, David says, Absalom, Absalom. Luke 10, Jesus says, Martha, Martha. Luke 22, Jesus says, Simon, Simon. In Acts 9, Jesus says, Saul, Saul. Luke 13, Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And here, my God, 
my God, what is this? Folks, this is an expression of intimate affection and personal love. That's why Jesus says, my God, my God. A profound, divine, agonizing cry from the lips of the Son to his Father. I can't begin to comprehend what it would be like to bear the fury of God that Jesus bore. I can't begin to understand how the Son would feel bearing all the punishment for all the sins of all the people who would ever believe throughout all of human history. But in that moment when the darkness faded, Jesus senses that his Father's gone. He's not sensing that presence. He was there in judgment, and now he seems to be gone. In a moment when he was exhausted with an exhaustion that's incomprehensible to us, where is God? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's going on here? I believe and I, that this is the final suffering of hell and a reminder to all sinners that while hell is full of divine fury, there will never be any comfort from God in hell. This is the final taste of hell. Jesus tasted all of it. Jesus tasted and experienced the entirety of hell. And hell is the fury of God, but it's also the absence of God. He will never be there. He'll never show up to comfort, never show up to console, to love, to relieve. So all that hell is, Jesus experienced the full fury of God and the sense of his absence. And folks, he did it for you. He did it for you. He did it for me. Now you would have thought that that divine agonizing cry at that moment of Jesus to his Father, my God, my God, would, would have been so profound to the people, to the crowd that was standing around that cross that they, they would have been silent around him, just in awe. But the bystanders, the crowds were so far removed from, from the reality of what was really going on in the spiritual d- dimension here. They renewed their sarcasm and their mockery. You would have thought that three hours of black darkness at noonday would have, might have so terrified them that it might have shut them up and shut down the blasphemy. But no, they began mocking that very personal, heart-wrenching cry of Jesus to his father. Oh, he's calling for Elijah, they mocked. Maybe Elijah can come and save them. They didn't make a mistake. They didn't mishear what Jesus said. When Christ called out, he called out in a loud voice, it says. He wasn't whispering, Eloi, Eloi. Elijah in the Greek is pronounced Elias. Elias, very different from Eloi. But their darkened minds were so full of hate and mockery. And then it was over. And then it was over. Jesus makes one more statement recorded in Luke 23, 46, and prophesied in Psalm chapter 31, into your hands 
I commit my spirit. With those words, Jesus must have felt the connection with his Father again. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. He felt once again the presence of his Father. In verse 33, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. You know what, that, you know what he cried out, right? Tetelestai, it is finished. Folks, his life was not taken. A person dying on the cross dies of asphyxiation. No breath, no voice, hardly even a whisper is even possible. But Jesus cried out in a loud voice. See, he had already told the Pharisees, no one takes my life from me. But I lay it down. And why did he lay it down? Because he loved you. Because he loved you. So did God abandon Jesus at the cross? Not hardly. He was there in the darkness. He was there in the ripping of that curtain in the temple. That was God's hand from top to bottom. He was there in the earthquake afterwards that broke the rocks and opened the tombs. He was there in the resurrection. And it was very apparent, at least to one man, the centurion, that he was there. He was a commander of a hundred soldiers. That's the name, uh, the, the title centurion. A career soldier himself, familiar with death, a hardened killer himself, no doubt, guarding Jesus. He had overseen all the crucifixion, oversaw the, the, uh, the arrest, the incarceration, the scourging. He, he's an eyewitness of everything. He's an eyewitness to the abuse, the spitting, the punching, the mocking, the sneering. He's an eyewitness of the interaction of Jesus with a thief on the cross. And Jesus' prayer of forgiveness for himself and the others that actually crucified him. It says, when, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely, surely this man was the Son of God. And Luke adds in chapter 23, the centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God. It's not an act of a non-believer. He praised God and said, surely this was a righteous man. There's one more event of significance, I think, that shows that God's presence there at the cross. In Luke chapter 23, verse 48, it tells us this. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. What's that a sign of? That is a Jewish sign of repentance and sorrow. Something changed. Something profoundly changed in that crowd. A deep sorrow and repentance came over them. But it was too late. Or was it? I think this may have been very well preparing them for the day of Pentecost. When Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And it says that about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They got a second chance. That's how much God loved them. And that's how much... Jesus loves you and how much he loves me. 
You know, usually at Easter, there's a lot of focus on the physical beatings, right? And the scourgings. The film Passion of the Christ, boy, that was depicted in detail. The horribleness of that. All that Jesus took in his body and the physical pain. But that actually depicts the wrath of man. That's the wrath of man. But that was nothing compared to the wrath of God that was poured out for you and me and all of mankind in those three hours of darkness. That's how serious God takes sin. How serious are we about sin in our life? Eh, I'll be all right. I'll try better. In a moment, we're going to be coming to the table to partake of the communion elements, remembering Christ's death. We need to consider what Jesus did for us as we come. Try to grasp the enormity of the wrath that Jesus faced for us in those three hours of darkness. That wrath was meant for you. It was meant for me. Communion is never to be taken nonchalantly. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, whoever eats the bread or drinks a cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Is there sin in your life that you're perhaps just trying to hide, don't want to deal with it? Makes me uncomfortable, you know? I might have to go and talk to somebody. That's embarrassing. Are we taking the bread and the cup in an unworthy manner. If there is sin in our life and we take the bread and the cup, we are taking it in an unworthy manner. God suffered all that wrath. God suffered that judgment. God suffered all of that to take those sins away if we will confess them. I don't want to be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of Jesus. We'll be mocking him just like the crowd did. Don't let that happen. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up at, at this time. And this evening, if the Lord's been speaking to you, if the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you, it could be about anything. Maybe there's something that you've done against somebody that you know that is displeasing to the Lord. Maybe it's an attitude you're having with somebody. Maybe it's difficulty, you're struggling with your thought life. Maybe it's your fighting pride. You know, sometimes we can be so proud of how humble we are and how righteous we are. Hmm. Perhaps there's a bad habit that you've, you're having a hard time kicking, but you know 
It's not pleasing to the Lord. Whatever the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you about this evening, would you go ahead and open the little folded piece of paper there that says, take it to the cross, and just jot down whatever the Holy Spirit's been saying to you. You can hide it. Nobody needs to see it. I can imagine, because I felt it myself at times, well, I'm not going to go up there. Everybody going to think, I got, I got a horrible sin in my life. Who cares? What does God think? What does God think? And in a moment, as the worship team sings, and you can join along, and we'll stand, so it's easier, we're already standing. But after, after you've written whatever the Lord wants you to write, fold it again just like this, and I just want you to make your way out of your rows, out of your seats, come on up here, take it to the cross, and shred it, okay? It's destroyed. When you write it down, you, that, that doesn't forgive your sin, okay? Don't, don't misunderstand me, all right? We need to confess Jesus, just, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. He does that. But by bringing that up and shredding it here, that will remind us, you know what I wrote down there? I took it to the cross. Jesus forgave it. It's there. And I will not pick it back up again. Let's stand. <laughs>